0: Lord, we thank you for Christmas time, and I pray that you would help us to hear your voice in the scriptures this morning. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would inspire us to see afresh your power and your glory at Christmas, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Carla and John. By the way, what anointed readings. Well done. That was great. Uh, I got to know Carla. I've I've gotten to know John over the last several years. Um, Most recently, John and I have been talking a lot about sports, which has been fun. But at the White Elephant Party... Um, Tuesday, I got to know Carla, and we found out that we have a common um, experience in our past, and that's living in the great state of Washington. Um, And anyways, it's just so cool how God sovereignly orders our circumstances to uh, interact with one another, and thank you both for reading. So we're three-quarters of the way into Advent, and um, as um, we have been focusing on Isaiah, which is, of course... Old Testament prophetic book, um, we are set up really well to uh, fill our hearts with joy this morning as we ponder um, the wonders of our Savior's birth, which was both predicted and expected. The coming of the Messiah at Christmas was a desired Thing, It was something that was welcomed, even longed for, going back centuries in the history of God's people. And it was also anticipated. It was expected. And in our series uh, on Isaiah, we've had the moniker of hope as kind of our adopted theme. And if you like, think of hope as kind of a combination, even a formula, consisting of two aspects. One is desire. If you and I have hope, we desire something. We desire for something or someone or an event or an experience. We desire that. We, we long for it. But then hope also includes a second aspect, and that's expectation. Not only do we long for things, but we lean forward, Mike, daring to expect them. Come to pass. And that combination of desire and expectation is why we can indeed have hope at Christmas, because what we're talking about, the Savior's birth, was indeed both desired and anticipated. It was longed for and it was expected. And even though the circumstances of Jesus' birth were surprising in some aspects, Nonetheless, it was the dawn of hope for humanity. And that's why, in the words of uh, Sidney and Tim, what they read in the set prayer they prayed um, this morning, we indeed are grateful for the joy that surrounds the birth of Jesus. That joy involves delighting in what the prophets correctly, and it's amazing, correctly foretold. In this case our Savior's birth. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires. He'll give you that qualitative joy in your heart. One way that we can delight in the Lord is to ponder how He has sovereignly ordered human history and written both before and after about it in this book. In the scriptures, the birthplace of Jesus, Bethlehem, was the birthplace of one who previous centuries, poets, scholars, kings, and prophets wrote about in advance. That's why I had Carla read those two excerpts from 1 Peter 1 and 2 Peter 1. If you, need, if you need some scriptures to go to when you have doubts, go to those two chapters. Because it's all about, it's, it's the Apostle Peter explaining how this prophetic, predictive thing works. The connection between the Old Testament prophets and all that we have experienced in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Just a few of the uh, sort of gems from what Carla read. First, the prophets searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing. Can you picture the prophets, Lynn, you know, kind of maybe squinting, wondering, the Spirit's in me, what should I write down? What should I say? There was this uh, partnership between the prophets and the Spirit of God, and it was real... Effort. It was like those of you who just finished finals. It was like that. You know, squinting, grunting, (laughs) agonizing. Another gem from what Carla read. It was revealed to the prophets that they were not serving themselves, but you and me. At some level, prophets like Isaiah, they had this inkling that what they were writing was not just for 8th and 7th century Israel or Judah. It wasn't just about them. There was some audience in the future, an audience at, what's the address here, 121 4th Street, Darren? Sounds right. Yeah. Amazing. They were serving us. The prophets were passing the ball forward in time to us, uh, if you will. Another gem. No prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. The prophet spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What that means is is that, once again, if anything good happens in this prophetic realm, if it's true, God gets all the glory, God gets all the credit because he was the one inspiring those prophets to write about what they desired and what they expected. And I marvel at this. And and you know who else marvels at this? Maybe you heard it in what Carla read. The Apostle Peter wrote, even angels long to look into these things. You know, there's lots of angels at Christmas time, right? We Talk about it. We've got art pieces, cookie cutters that are shaped like angels. That's, don't you know that the angels, for the next 30 days, they're all about that, right? Just marveling at the truth of the Old Testament prophecies coming to pass in the New Covenant. I have a friend, his name is Jeff. I have never seen an angel but my friend Jeff has seen an angel. He described... He was at a worship conference in Florida, standing, worshiping God. And he turns, and there, he said it was a 12-foot-high angel. And you know how um, we, we, we know things with our minds, like, you know, we can, like, do a math problem and use our reason to understand 2 plus 2 is 4. But we also have other ways of knowing things, it's it's intuition, that sense where you just know something's true when you hear it. And that's what it was like. I mean, I cannot, with my reason, properly conceive of what it would be like to be next to an angel. But when I heard Jeff describe it, in my spirit, I knew what he was describing corresponded with reality. Angels like that, 12-foot-tall angels, others that we'll talk about, we look at this morning, who marvel and long to look into the wonderful circumstances around Jesus' birth. It's because of Old Testament scriptures like the one uh, John read in Matthew's Gospel, Micah 5.2, authored, at the latest 700 years before the birth of Christ Micah the prophet Micah writing says but you Bethlehem though you are small among the clans of Judah out of you will come out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from old From ancient times. This prophecy, authored by Micah, again, 700 years before Christ's birth, is exactly the prophetic passage that the Jewish teachers cite when King Herod, in his panic, asks the wise men or hears from the wise men that there's supposedly a a new king being born. The wise men, the magi, really astronomy, philosopher-type people, um, in their own astronomical wonder, they had come to Herod, as John read, and they asked the question to King Herod, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Matthew's gospel goes on to highlight all the panic that King Herod has because of this. So he turns kind of hoping that it, maybe it isn't true, turns to the Jewish teachers and they cite Micah 5 two. They say, definitively, the new king will be born in Bethlehem as predicted 700 years ago. You can just see King Herod's face turning white. But, you know, Jesus isn't the only um, biblical figure to emerge from Bethlehem, Right? In the early days of the nation of Israel, before the days of Isaiah, the prophet Samuel is told by God to anoint David, who is from Bethlehem. And this account in 1 Samuel 16 shows the utter surprise of everyone, including David's own father, Jesse, who we sang a song about. That David, young, seemingly unsuited for the role of being a king, was the one God had selected. That's how God works. Sometimes, even when we long for it and expect it, it happens in an unusual, surprising way. That's the thing about God that I love. The prophets foretell so much, yet at the same time, so much is still surprising. So much of it coming out of small clans, small towns, humble circumstances, you know, like at Christmas, humble circumstances, like our Savior being born in a manger, a feeding trough used for livestock, predicted, expected, hoped for, but with surprising elements. Maybe that's why we don't have to feel guilty when we give each other gifts at Christmas because, after all, we're just carrying on the tradition of surprise. This morning, um, by way of looking at kind of the middle section of Isaiah, I want us to be surprised in a new way about the greatness of God. Maybe picture yourself being surprised and full of joy with the angels as we cheer on our great God, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. So here's a recipe for you: recipe for an imagination-filled Christmas two things I would commend to you. As Ben explained, you know, we've got these dates on our calendar. You know, next uh, Sunday morning, 10 a.m. service, no service on New Year's Eve. Then we have Epiphany, the the actual January 6th. Don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. Then there is Kansas Day, not a Christian year, but an important day nonetheless. And over the next 30, 40 days, I would encourage you to do these two things. One, look at the Scriptures on your phone or in a Bible. And make the most of what God has revealed to us. And then secondly, invite the Holy Spirit to show you something new, to joyfully see the truth of the promises that we read in this book. About 10 years ago, I met a uh, professor from Notre Dame. I would never cheer for Notre Dame football. I don't really, I hope, I hope Sally doesn't go to Notre Dame, um, but, and I just find it annoying that NBC always has Notre Dame on TV, okay? Lord have mercy. But, I will never forget 10 years ago when I met this professor, Francesca Murphy, a theologian at Notre Dame, explain how the Holy Spirit can work with our imaginations and with this book. Um, She gave a very elaborate lecture, and I can't do it justice, but just some of the highlights of what she said, which I encourage you to hold on to as you follow this recipe. Professor Murphy says this, citing Augustine, the great theologian Augustine. Augustine explains that we have to be rational to believe. So, you know, we use our minds to read this book, to listen to a sermon like this, to apprehend in our minds the words of the songs that we're singing. But, Professor Murphy says, our intellect is actually an active intellect. It's an actual human experience. The mind is not just a container into which information goes. And then she uses the metaphor of light and illumination. Professor Murphy says, The person with Christian faith has been illuminated. And as we invite the continual inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which is divine light, divine inspiration... That works to help us imagine more clearly the practical truth of Christ, who is the light of the world. And I know that sometimes it can be very mundane going through the scriptures, but I would encourage you to join me in just inviting the Holy Spirit over these next 30, 45 days to help us to reimagine what this all means for us, for our communities, for our church. Indeed, one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to stimulate your imagination and generate excitement about the Scriptures. So what will we imagine as we enter into these next several uh, weeks? What will we imagine for our lives Thank you, Henry. For our lives, for our communities, for Mosaic. You know, this morning I was talking with Shelby. Shelby works at the Crisis Center. You know, her community and all of our communities, so much of the workplaces that we're involved in, that's community for us, right? We spend a lot of time there. And I asked Shelby, I was like, what's a sorrow and a joy that you experience in your workplace? And Shelby said, you know, the sorrow is I can't help everybody. But the joy is, I get to help some. We all, over the next few weeks, would be in a good place to invite the Spirit to open up our eyes to the truth of Scripture and to reimagine what this means for our lives, what this means for our communities, for our families, and also what it means for this particular expression of the church at 121 4th Street. So, let's look at Isaiah chapters 36 and 37. We're not going to read the entirety of these two passages. Um, I would encourage you that if you find anything captivating from this, spend some time reading the entirety of these two chapters. Isaiah chapters 36 and 37, if you want to go to it, Henry, thanks, is a pivot, it's a turning point in this book that is both prophetic and historical. We have a lot of... um, problems being alluded to in the first half of Isaiah, then we have this turning point that we're going to explore, and then following we have all this um, dynamic, uh, Christological foretelling things about Christ, including Isaiah 53, that raise our faith. But the turning point is an event in history that has um, caught the eye of angels and caught the eye of Christians throughout history. And the key uh, understanding for this particular uh, set of chapters is that we have a dominant force in the days of Isaiah, which is the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire is um, exerting its force and might onto the people in Isaiah 36 and 37. The, the, the Assyrian Empire has conquered uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, including its capital of Samaria, and it's beginning to invade Judea, including knocking on the door of Jerusalem, its capital. And what I want to talk about are some excavations that correspond with uh, Isaiah 36 and 37. So let's go to the next slide. So in um, the mid-1800s, there was a discovery made by an archaeologist named Austin Henry Laird, a British archaeologist. He conducted an, an excavation in 1847. And he went to uh, modern-day Mosul. You maybe have heard of that term, Mosul. I was just talking with J.D., who's in the, in the military. No doubt if you have any connection to the military, you've heard of Mosul, northern Iraq. In biblical antiquity, Mosul was the location of historic Nineveh, which you may recall as being associated with another prophet, the prophet Jonah. And Nineveh was one of the most important cities of the Assyrian Empire, this empire that was breathing down the neck and threatening uh, Jerusalem uh, as Isaiah uh, wrote uh, his prophetic and historical book. Um, Nineveh was um, a place that was um, fit for a king. And when Austin Henry Laird begins his dig, which took four years, he unearths... The remnants of a palace, um, he, he ends up sending a lot of the pieces and parts of this excavation back to London, to the British Museum. I find it very ironic that he basically was unearthing artifacts from an empire, and then because he himself was part of the British Empire, was able to move them to another museum. So you have like an empire taking from an empire. At some level, it's probably unfair, Right. But it's interesting. And if you want to go to the next slide, um, Henry, Laird unearthed this Assyrian palace, which includes reliefs. Reliefs are uh, flat surfaces of stone that have been sculpted in such a way to bring out uh, these images that you see here. Massive, massive reliefs that were used to decorate the walls of a palace, an Assyrian palace, Uh, at Nineveh. And basically what these reliefs are about is they are celebratory brag pieces. So they're bragging about the conquest of the Assyrian Empire during the life and times of Isaiah. And the king who is uh, featured in this brag piece is Sennacherib. Sennacherib is the king of Assyria at the time, He's the one with an army who is conquering, has already conquered much of northern Israel, and is actually beginning to threaten uh, Judah. And this is all happening in 701 B.C. And this is a a, a faith-building discovery because what we find and what Laird found in these reliefs corresponds uh, with the events of Isaiah 36 and 37. So let's have a look at what actually happens in Isaiah 36 and 37. If you want to go to the next slide. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then Sennacherib sent his field commander with a large army from Lashish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. If you look at this picture here, you'll see an oval shape. And what that is depicting is the, the wall that was around Lashish, this community uh, in Judah. And as, the, as we'll explore, the brag piece, this, these reliefs show that King Sennacherib and his Assyrian army totally dismantle the wall of that walled city of Lashish and end up conquering it brutally and inspiring fear in the likes of those in Jerusalem, including King Hezekiah. Next slide. Here is a drawing. It's kind of easier to see a drawing, a drawing of the actual reliefs that Lair discovered. If you look on the left here, you see the Assyrian army with bow and arrow. The Assyrians were big-time bowmen. In fact, uh, there were reports, perhaps Somewhat exaggerated, but reports nonetheless that when the Assyrians would go into battle, they would shoot so many arrows that they would darken the sky. And then, on the right side, they have battering rams, and they're taking down the wall of Lashish. The same event depicted in these reliefs described in Isaiah chapter 36 Next slide. And Sennacherib, pretty bad dude, wants on his relief, his brag piece, some detail. So they provide the detail. So not only does his army go in, knock down the wall, shoot bow and arrows, but actually begin to flay some of these people alive. It's a very uh, violent depiction. And it isn't just... Isaiah, who records these events. Next slide. We have three other Old, or two other Old Testament accounts regarding what's going on in Lashish. So we have an archaeological discovery corresponding with what three different passages in this book describe. And as Isaiah 36 and 37 detail, rumor is out that Lashish has been sacked and now Sennacherib is coming after Jerusalem, which is where King Hezekiah and Isaiah are. And of course, they are peeing their pants. (laughs) Next slide. Second Chronicles, one of those episodes, one of those accounts, puts it very clearly. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah cried out in prayer to heaven about this. You ever done that? It's actually a privilege as Christians to carry each other's burdens. It's a very good example of what it looks like. We all experience suffering in this life. And to be able to go to someone and say, hey, would you just sit with me, pray with me in my fear, Anxiety, I would be most grateful. Don't you know that's probably what was going on here? Probably King Hezekiah goes to Isaiah and says, "Oh, great religious dude, please help." And what do they do? They do the right thing. They turn to God. This is this is what we ought to do, right? And you know, one of the ways to understand the Old Testament stuff and the New Testament stuff is to think physical and spiritual. You know, here we're talking about people being flayed alive, walls coming down, battles. That may not be what we're experiencing today. But oftentimes, what we read about in the Old Testament, in a physical sense, battles, Um, stories like the story of Samson, you know, being really strong, think of those things in Christ in a spiritual sense. Physical depictions of God's might in the Old Testament, spiritual strength, at hand in Christ in the New Testament for us. It's maybe one of the ways that will help us to think through uh, and make the most of the Old Testament. Next slide, please. So Hezekiah, he gets with Isaiah. They turn to God, and then Hezekiah prays one of the best prayers. If you're looking for a prayer to memorize, maybe adopt as your own, this is a good one. 2 Kings chapter 19. Lord God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. Great way to start a prayer, just by adoring God, all of his might, all of his wonder. Now let's talk about cherubim. Next slide. The correct pronunciation of cherubim, I think, you can ask Tracy Emery, Expert on pronunciation of biblical words is cherubim. But I like to think of it as cheerubim. Why? Because that is the business of angels. The angels are cheering on to the glory of God, they're the ones longing to see the truth of God's prophecies coming true. They're the ones who witness, they're the ones singing on Christmas morning. The cherubim are cheering on God, and you and I can do the same. What are cherubim? They're winged angelic beings. They're kind of a higher order of angels, throne bearers. And this is who Hezekiah is referencing when he's praying to God. <clears throat> you probably recognize this image, if not from Raiders of the Lost Ark, than from your illustrated Bible. Um, the winged angelic being of the cherubim um, sit atop the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Next slide. And obviously they're symbolic representations of the reality of cherubim. Of angels like the one my friend Jeff was standing next to. But you know, what I love about Hezekiah in the account of Isaiah 36 and 37 is that he does not just sit back and marvel at, at the ethereal, supernatural reality of the angels. No, he turns and looks at the bad news at hand. Next slide. This is what Isaiah pray, or Hezekiah prays. He says, "'It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands.'" I love that. Did you know that you can be that honest with God? God, you're amazing. But you know what? It's true. Circumstance, circumstance, circumstance. Change in life, disruption in life, surprise, bad surprise in life. Hezekiah is authentic in his prayer to the living God. But, you know, then he turns it back because he's praying to the, the, the Almighty, right? Next slide. Now, O Lord, deliver us from Sennacherib's hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. And as you can read in Isaiah 36 and 37, after this prayer is prayed, we're told that an angel of the Lord comes in and causes the army to retreat and not attack Jerusalem. It's a true deliverance. What happened to Lashish and was bragged about in the palace at Nineveh doesn't happen to Jerusalem in this instance. Now, other historians, including the Greek historian Herodotus, have studied and scrutinized, kind of like what Lair did when he went and excavated Nineveh. You know, what actually was the angel of the Lord that disrupted the Assyrian army and caused them to not sack Jerusalem? Herodotus thinks it was that disease in human history, bubonic plague. Who knows? But don't you know? God, sovereignly ordering all things, an angel of the Lord could very well have done that. It's amazing. next slide. And not only is um, Jerusalem delivered in this instance, but Sennacherib, who had been bragging about himself on these reliefs at the palace in Nineveh, he too one day gets dethroned. You ever heard of someone named Nebuchadnezzar? The next empire on the scene Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, their king, King Nebuchadnezzar, ends up conquering, actually also causing problems for Israel later too. But when Nebuchadnezzar goes into the palace at Nineveh and sees Sennacherib's brag piece, he scratches out the face of Sennacherib. So interesting. One empire trying to one-up another empire. So what can we say about this? Well, One important part of Isaiah 36 that becomes clear is that part of the problem at hand for King Hezekiah is that he had been putting his trust in other nations through alliances. So, for instance, he put his trust in Egypt. Egypt was a rising power at the time, and he thought, Hey, you know, the Assyrians might be threatening me, but if I can become friends with Egypt, all will be fine. And part of what's going on in Isaiah 36 and 37 is that God is saying, No, no, you do not need to trust in other foreign countries, including foreign gods. You need to trust in me. And his prayer, that prayer that we walk through, is a prayer of returning to God. And you know, you and I can do that. Anyone guilty of putting their trust in things other than God from time to time, a few of you are raising your hands, some of you are lying. we can do that. King Hezekiah did that. And that's ultimately what Isaiah 36 and 37, this pivot point, this turning point, is all about. It's God asking Hezekiah, in whom do you trust? It's a great question. Next Sunday, after the service, she began to ponder more intentionally Christmas. In whom do you trust? I brought some uh, artifacts of my own. Is that okay, Mike? So what did the Magi bring when they go to see Jesus? Three gifts, right? What's the first one? Gold, right? By the way, this is uh, from Joanne's, I think. Gold fit for a king, right? What else did they bring? Frankincense. This is USDA organic certified. Frankincense. Why frankincense? Frankincense was used in the temple for worship. Even today, uh, sometimes, as uh, Susan and we've prayed for people, we mix a little bit of frankincense in with olive oil and pray for healing for people. Frankincense. Another gift from the Magi. And then finally, what was the third gift? Myrrh. myrrh. I don't have any myrrh. But what did myrrh symbolize? Myrrh was used for involving the dead. So I brought this. This is from my friend Susan. This is obviously a symbol of death. Jesus, worthy of gold because he was king, worthy of worship, symbolized by frankincense. But why did he come? He came to die for you and me. So how do we make the most of this? Uh, Next slide, please. As we imagine this sort of turning point um, at the end of 2023 and the beginning of 2024. Um, As I mentioned, all of us, like Shelby, have communities in our immediate spheres of influence. School, work, family, whatever. Whatever. But I also want us to think about, for those of you who consider Mosaic Church your church home, a turning point in terms of your involvement uh, here at Mosaic. You know, Mosaic has a very fitting name. A Mosaic brings to to mind different pieces of tiles coming together, right? And as a member of the five-person finance committee, along with Mike and Ryan and Ben and Josh, uh, one of the things that we are aware of is that come Kansas Day, January 29, we really need to have a reliable picture of the level of giving for our next budget planning. No one likes to talk about money in church, but the way I see it is this. You and I each have a calling that is most important, and that is... To love Jesus and to follow Him and see that call to the end. And then out of that calling comes other stuff, like serving, discerning your career, helping out others as you're prompted by the Holy Spirit. But also, in keeping with Christian practice, giving. And we have a great tradition here at Mosaic of not just staffing and paying bills, but giving to the community. Giving to those who are in need, more in need than perhaps you and me. And I can't tell you what to give, and you can't tell me what to give. So the pressure's off, right? But as we love Jesus and follow him, even lived up to the slogan of our church, Uniting People in the Way of Jesus... Part of that is going to involve giving, and I would encourage you to spend some of this time over the next 30, 45 days, certainly prior to Kansas Day, and just try to routinize your level of giving, whatever that may be. Again, you can't tell me, I can't tell you. One of the great challenges that we face at Christmas is to forget the gifts of the Magi. It's so easy to focus on have I, I've done this, have I executed my shopping list for others? But the Magi's shopping list was pretty simple gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And their gift, and keep in mind, they traveled hundreds of miles to give their gift. It was for Jesus. So that's my prayer this morning, that we would be stirred up afresh to look to Jesus, to worship Him. And even as we give ourselves again to our Savior, to realize that He can stir in us afresh, a love for his kingdom, and all that is at stake in our communities. So if you would stand... Thank you for listening to the Mosaic Church podcast. For more teachings, resources, and other news, please visit mosaicmhk.com.